Welcome to The Whole Steward, the holistic approach to wealth from a Christian worldview. I'm your host, Andrew Stanton, and I'm glad you've joined. Who are your heroes of the faith? Maybe you think of the Hall of Faith, like Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses. Or how about Job, Solomon, Daniel, or Zerubbabel, Peter, James, John, Matthew, Zacchaeus, Mary, and Martha? What about Paul, Barnabas, Lydia, Philemon, Luke? What was their stewardship like? What was their view of money, wealth, and possessions? Let's find out in a brief survey today on The Whole Steward. Welcome to episode number four. Last week, we talked about what is money, what is time value, and how and why you would want to grow your means. We saw how money is a store of value and compensation for working all forms of capital together to create value for others. If you're not sure what I'm talking about, all forms of capital, make sure you catch the second half of episode one. I go through the nine forms of capital there. You may have been thinking last time, why study these things? You seem way too concerned about money and wealth and growing it. And, you know, why spend time even thinking about wealth creation uh, or stewardship or expanding your means? Uh, To answer that, we will today be doing a quick survey of the giants of the faith throughout the scriptures. Remember, if you want to get in contact with me here at The Whole Steward, just send an email to letters at thewholesteward.com or you can contact me through the website at thewholesteward.com slash contact. So let's jump right in. The first one I want to look at is Adam. Adam, yes, the first man. Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. From the very beginning, mankind was commissioned to work and keep that which God had made. Is it safe to say that Adam was rich? Uh, He was a steward of his relationship with God, with his wife, with the body that he had through what he ate, naming the animals, tending the garden to work it and keep it. He was very wealthy. He pretty much had it all, didn't he? He was to care for it all and follow God's commands. You know the story, though. It didn't go quite so well. Let's look at 1 John 2, 15-17, which says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. But was Adam satisfied with what God had given him? Or did he love what was in the world more than the love of the Father? So look at this. Back in Genesis, God had forbidden them to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, did he not? And in Genesis 3, verse 6, Scripture says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. So you see here, the three things that are in the world. Good for food, that's the lust of the flesh. Delight to the eyes, that's the lust of the eyes. And desired to make one wise, that is the pride of life. They fell and sinned. 
This is not meant to be an exegesis of Genesis chapter 2 and 3. It's simply to show what, how, and why they were stewards, and how they ended up loving the world and the things in the world more than the Father. But from the very beginning, man was very wealthy and commissioned to fill and subdue the earth and to work it and keep it. And that was how mankind would bring glory to God. Next, let's jump forward to Noah. Noah was given plans to build the ark. Uh, He built something more valuable than anything else at the time, since it was the only hope of salvation for surviving the flood, right? This thing was big, and it was hard to build. He must have been quite wealthy and a good steward to sustain his family while also building a massive ship, which to everyone else seemed completely superfluous to his livelihood, most likely. It could have easily taken him many years to build, and he was commissioned in Genesis 6.21, which reads, Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them, that is, the animals that he was bringing on the ark. Again, Noah is managing all these forms of capital for God's glory, and he certainly had a lot of it. I mean, his wealth was not a hindrance to his faith in God. He actually used it in obedience to God to save himself, his sons and their wives, and the animals. I love Genesis 6.22, which says, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Isn't that beautiful? Can you say that? Do you want to be like Noah, trusting God and doing well with what God provides? Let's jump forward to Abraham, the father of faith. This is amazing. Genesis chapter 12, verse 5 says, And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that he had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and set out to go to the land of Canaan. Abraham's first act of obedience that's recorded in Scripture involved him gathering his household and his possessions to go to the land of Canaan in obedience to God. Verse 7 of chapter 12 says, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now God is promising here to give land to Abraham. Then verse 11 of chapter 12 says, When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a beautiful woman in appearance. And of course, he's going to set up this scheme where he lies about who his wife is to try to protect himself. But the point here is that he's saying she's beautiful in appearance. Now, it wasn't just his opinion. Verse 14 says, When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. So this relationship then with his wife is his most important earthly relationship. Now, he was a steward of that relationship as well. And you can see here having some difficulty navigating that when he was going into Egypt. In verse 16, we learn that Abraham had male servants and female servants. He also had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, female donkeys, and camels. In verse 2 of chapter 13, now Abraham was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. So he also was a precious metals guy. Now, 
How did Abraham obtain all of these possessions? Was it just luck? Was it just handed to him? The Bible doesn't say exactly. However, we do know a few things about his stewardship. He was wise, humble, obedient, and he created value for people through solving problems. You may not have thought of it from this angle before, but think about this. Here's one example. He and his nephew had so many possessions under their care that there was strife between their herdsmen. The land couldn't support both of their flocks. Genesis 13, 5-7 says, And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen. So Abram is going to be a problem solver. And this is beautiful. He comes up with a solution. He says basically, okay, Lot, look, you see the land on the left or the land on the right? If you take the left, I'll go to the right. If you take the right, I'll go to the left. How humble, how wise of Abraham to propose this to his nephew. Lot chose the land of the Jordan Valley and journeyed east while Abram settled in the land of Canaan. Problem solved. Another example I love about Abraham or Abram is that one time when the five kings had joined forces to fight against four kings and they were defeated, remember they captured Lot and took him? Genesis 14, 11 to 16. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went away. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Anner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot and his possessions and the women and the people. This is amazing. Think about what's happening here. Abram has a household that includes 318 trained men born in his house. Like he's got a personal army. And not only that, he's not sitting there just going, oh, isn't it a bummer the four kings uh, defeated the five, the kings got hauled off, and my nephew Lot as well. There's not really anything I can do. No, he up and takes action and leads basically his personal army in a strategic pursuit and defeats the forces that had captured all the possessions, his kinsmen Lot, and the women and the people. How many people do you know that have a, an army like that in their household and use it in that manner? Now, I'm not saying necessarily you should, but I'm talking about the stewardship that Abraham that Abram had here and the way that he used the resources that God had put under his care to glorify God and to do things like bringing back possessions and his kinsmen and the women and the people. He was a value provider. Can you see that? 
He was not just a lucky guy who happened to be rich. One who is faithful in a little will also be faithful in much. And Abraham certainly was. But what was all his wealth? Is, is that really how he was justified? Did he justify himself that way? Is that why God declared him righteous? Was he thinking, oh, God must love me because of my earthly possessions and how good of a job I do for him? Remember, he did lack one significant thing, and that was offspring. Remember, it was a promise that God gave him about his offspring being as numerous as the stars of heaven. And so how was Abraham justified? Genesis 15, 6. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So how was he counted righteous? Because he believed the Lord. And that was it. He was a faithful steward, but he was justified by his belief in God's promises. Let's jump to his son Isaac. Genesis 26, 12-14 says, And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. So now this is his son, Isaac. He was a problem solver as well, and a value creator, just like his father. If you're wondering, read about it in Genesis chapter 26. Read the whole thing. Also, his son, Jacob. He was a shrewd businessman, oppressed by Laban, but made himself wealthy nonetheless. What about Joseph, his son? In charge of all the wealth in Egypt? How did he get there? How about Moses? An educated man and author of many of the scriptures. What about King David? Solomon? How about Ehud, Gideon, Jephthah, Boaz, Ruth, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Elijah, Elisha, Daniel? The list goes on and on. Since this is just a quick survey, if you're interested in those people, I encourage you to go read the stories. On a regular basis, we'll be doing our Wealth in the Bible segments, and we will cover each one of these stories, how those men and women of the faith were stewards of the gifts that God had given them, and this is not an exhaustive list at all. The list goes on and on. For now, suffice it to say, they manage their wealth and often great amounts of it for the glory of God. And we can learn from them. In that list I just mentioned are some of the wealthiest people the world has ever known. And they worshipped God rather than money. I want to insert one more example here. This is just right on the fly. I don't have any notes for this. I want to take you through the excellent wife. And as we go through this, notice the stewardship. Notice the wealth implications. Notice the management of God's possessions. Everything he created and how that flows out of the spiritual implications of her relationship with the Lord. So this is Proverbs 31, 10 to 31. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax, and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. 
She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff, and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household, and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands, and let her works praise her in the gates. End quote. That is an excellent wife. And we can certainly look at several Old Testament women who fit this to one degree or another. I would pray the men and the women who are hearing this would understand the implications of what it means to be an excellent wife in God's eyes. A woman who fears the Lord is to be praised, and everything that was just listed flowed directly out of her worship to God. So these are some of the wealthiest people the world has ever known. Everyone from Adam to Abraham to David and Solomon or the excellent wife. But how are we to understand this? Jesus says in Matthew 6, 19-24, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if the eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. End quote. So that sounds opposite to what many of these men and women of God did. How are we to reconcile this then? If Jesus is 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 Jesus giving a new teaching? Did the father of faith and the man after God's own heart have it wrong? They stored up a lot of wealth. To answer this, we'll jump into the New Testament as we continue our brief survey of the scriptures next on The Whole Steward. 
Hey there, it's Andrew. I pour a lot into the whole steward, and I'm so humbled you're listening. Did you know I regularly post new articles to our website? I also send the Holistic Approach to Wealth newsletter once a week, to which you can subscribe at thewholesteward.com slash newsletter. If you're enjoying what you're hearing on the show, would you share it with a friend or leave us a review? I'd really appreciate it. Oh, and thanks for listening. We started looking at some Old Testament characters and how they approached wealth management. The survey was certainly not exhaustive, and there are some in there that had earthly wealth, lost it, gained it again, and in some cases that happened to be multiple times, like in the case of Job. There are others for which very little is said about their earthly possession, and there are still others for which had very few earthly possessions and yet great faith in God. The point, however, is unavoidable that in the Old Testament, the earthly possessions were seen as a blessing and provision from God, whether the person was a believer in God or not, that what they had was a gift from God, and it all belongs to the Lord. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away, just the same. So what about this teaching of Jesus that I brought up before the break? He sums it up nicely in his teaching in Luke 12 where someone in the crowd asked him to be the financial arbiter over a family dispute regarding an inheritance. So let's jump into Luke 12 and get just a little bit of context. Jesus had just finished teaching to beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Remember, they were lovers of money. Have no fear of those who would kill the body, he says, and after that have nothing they can do, but fear God instead, and trust him as a loving and powerful father. He then exhorts everyone to acknowledge him before men that he might acknowledge them before the angels of heaven. So that is the context from verse 1 up to verse 12. Now, starting in verse 13 of chapter 12 of Luke, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you. And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentiful. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. End quote. See, the key here is laying up treasure for yourself versus being rich toward God. Abraham was very wealthy, but he understood the second half. He was rich toward God. 
He used his wealth in a manner that glorified God. Same goes for David, a man after God's own heart. The same goes for Isaac and for Jacob and for Joseph and for Boaz and for everybody, the the excellent wife, everybody in that list that we looked at. They understood this. Did they lay up treasure for themselves and were not rich toward God? Or did they steward what they had being rich toward God? That's the difference. To show you an example with Jacob, he was fleeing from Laban who had mistreated him for 20 years. So look at this. In Genesis 31, 41 to 42, the scripture says, These 20 years I have been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Isn't that an interesting way to refer to God? The God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac. That carries so many implications. One is that it implies Isaac feared the Lord, but it also implies that Jacob trusted God for vindicating him against his father-in-law who had mistreated him economically. So then it is good that men and women be stewards of God's creation. And we saw that at the beginning of Genesis and all through the Old Testament scriptures. And they do that while fearing God, worshiping him, and serving him in their stewardship with what they had. That's why the whole steward seeks to glorify God in every area of stewardship. Now, let's survey the New Testament and see how those heroes of the faith approached stewardship. To get us started, let's look at Paul's teaching on the topic, and that'll serve as our guide as we go through the examples of stewardship. 1 Timothy 6, 17 and 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That is the teaching of Paul. It's consistent with God's expectation of stewardship all through the scripture. So let's look at the New Testament examples. Let's start with one of our favorite, Peter. That bold leader of the apostles. He was a businessman running a successful fishing enterprise in Galilee. You remember that? He was partners with James and John. And when Jesus called him to follow him, he didn't necessarily immediately liquidate all his business assets. I'll show you what I mean. It appears Peter's original home was in Bethsaida, referred to in John 1.44. But later in Mark 1.29, we see him sharing a house in Capernaum with his brother Andrew. Though the two towns were only five miles apart, they were in different jurisdictions, and perhaps maybe he made the move to reduce his taxes because the fish processing plant of the area was in Magdala, and that required passing through Capernaum with the goods to pay taxes when crossing jurisdictions at the tax booths that likely Matthew would have sat at. Could have been for tax reasons, Or maybe he just downsized by house hacking with his brother for the sake of Christ's ministry that was headquartered there. 
This house might be the one that was referred to as Jesus' home in Mark 2.1. The remains of this house can still be visited today. I've seen it. It's called Peter's House. It's right there in Capernaum. You can see it. It's believed that a lot of the teaching that Jesus did was based out of that house in Capernaum. What about his business assets like his boats and gear? Well, we know at the beginning he loaned them as a floating pulpit for Jesus. And it's not specifically said, but Jesus and his disciples did use a boat throughout his ministry. In fact, Mark mentions crossing the Sea of Galilee no less than eight times in a boat often referred to as the boat. Now, was this Peter's boat? It might have been. I don't know. Maybe. Anyways, it was referred to as the boat. And remember also, Peter had a boat to go fishing with after Christ had risen from the dead and he said, meet him in Galilee. He goes, I'm going fishing and he's out in a boat. Whose boat was that? Anyways, Jesus's ministry certainly benefited from the house, and the skills that these men had on the Sea of Galilee using the boats to get back and forth across the sea. What about his business partners, James and John, the Sons of Thunder? These guys are pretty interesting because they also had boats, and they worked for their father, Zebedee, and his business, and they were partners with Peter. It very well could have been Zebedee's boats that the disciples were using, the the disciples and Jesus were using to get across the sea back and forth. But anyways, it was their connections with their father's business that would have been getting them back and forth in that case. Or maybe they were just paying a fee to go back and forth. Either way, they must have been well-known and respected in the community. It's John who was known to the high priest who was able to freely enter into the courtyard of the high priest and get Peter in the door as well. You remember that? The point here is to appreciate the men that Jesus chose as apostles and how they used their earthly assets for the sake of the gospel ministry. Now, I'm not saying John getting Peter into the courtyard was for the sake of the gospel, but it certainly was part of fulfilling Christ's predictions about Peter. How about another apostle, Levi, also known as Matthew? Luke 5, 27 and 29 says, After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Now, this is interesting. Levi leaves the tax booth and his practice. Tax collectors were basically traders of the people. They would extort the people above and beyond what Rome even required them to collect. And so they were just the riffraff of society. They were just despised and traitors. They were horrible to their own people. But verse 29 says, And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining that table with them. As a side note, Jesus really liked to go to dinner parties. And he even taught about the people's response to that. In Matthew eleven eighteen and 19, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man comes eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by our deeds. End quote. So there you see 
John's out in the wilderness. He's wearing camel skin, a goat, and eating locusts and, and wild honey. And they're like, he's a crazy man. He's out in the desert. He's got a demon. Jesus came going to dinner parties, eating and drinking. He even made wine one time for a wedding dinner party. Anyways, at the end of Levi's dinner party, Jesus says in Matthew 9.13, he says, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. There's always that spiritual implication of how you are managing your earthly goods for his glory. Levi was hosting a gospel-centered outreach dinner party at his house. Another one I find very fascinating is Zacchaeus. Luke 19.2 says he was a chief tax collector and was rich. Tax collectors were traitors. They were extortioners. They were enemies of the people. And Jesus said, I must stay at your house today. How amazing. Zacchaeus, what did he do? He hurried down out of the tree and he received him joyfully. Not only that, he hosted him as a guest. We see in Luke 19.8, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. So Zacchaeus was rich and immediately started managing his wealth for God's glory. He was saved not because of his actions, but rather his actions were evidence that he was saved because in Luke 19, 9 to 10, and Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So here you see another man managing his wealth for God's glory. Next is Joseph of Arimathea. He's a very fascinating one. I'm going to run through three different scriptures that describe who this man is. Listen to these. Matthew 27, 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who was also a disciple of Jesus. Mark 15.43 says, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Luke 23.50, the second half to 53, says, He was a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. Isaiah 53, 9 says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man, in his death. The tomb could have been Joseph's, or maybe he just arranged it, but it was obviously an expensive burial, and Joseph of Arimathea arranged it. This man's a respected member of the council. He's looking for the kingdom of God. He takes courage, and he takes action. Uh, He's a rich man, and he's a disciple of Jesus. Another one, one of Joseph's counterparts, Nicodemus. He was a wealthy member of the Sanhedrin. He was the one that came to Jesus by night. He was also the one who took flack for sticking up for Jesus. When they were having their evil deliberations about what to do with Jesus, he asked 
about, you know, having a fair trial, and they ridiculed him. On the night of Jesus' death, John 19.39 says, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Now, right there, 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe, that was about five times the normal amount that would have been used during the embalming process. And it could have cost upwards of a couple hundred thousand dollars for these spices. John 19.40, the next verse says, So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in the linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Here you have an expensive tomb provided by Joseph of Arimathea, spices provided by Nicodemus. Let me tell you something. This was not a cheap burial. And these wealthy men who were disciples of Jesus used what they had in worship to God during the burial of Jesus. This is how they managed their assets and their wealth in that way. Let's jump into the book of Acts. Barnabas. He was a real estate guy. People were selling lands and houses, bringing the proceeds to the apostles to be distributed to whoever had need. And Acts 4.36-37 says, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So Barnabas is doing land deals to provide for the church. And he was a son of encouragement, and this was an act of worship and stewardship of what he had. Interestingly, just after that, Ananias and Sapphira also sold a piece of property to do the same. And you remember, they didn't come out alive. And their sin wasn't selling the property or keeping the property, but it was actually lying about the sale price. Peter says to Ananias in Acts 5.4, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Peter is saying, look, what you had was yours. It was at your disposal. You could have done whatever you wanted with it. And your sin was lying about it. Lying about how you were managing your assets. Let's jump ahead in Acts to a Gentile, Cornelius. Acts chapter 10, verses 1 to 2. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Verse 22 of chapter 10 says, And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. Now, Cornelius had called together all his relatives and close friends to hear Peter. He hosted them in his house. You can read the story. The results were amazing. The Holy Spirit fell on the Gentiles that day. And they asked Peter to remain some days with him. So here you see a man who feared the Lord, how he was using his position, his power, his stewardship, his wealth to facilitate yet another gospel-centered ministry outreach event basically at his house. So this is the stewardship of Cornelius in worship to God. 
Here's another interesting one. Lydia. She was a successful businesswoman. She was a supplier of expensive and rare goods to royalty and other nobility. And how do we know? Well, she was a seller of purple. And purple dye was very costly. It was difficult to produce. And it came from the mucus of predatory snails in the Mediterranean Sea. So it's very difficult to come by. Remember from last time, our value proposition is scarcity and utility. So it was very scarce, and it was also very useful because it was a very good dye, a purple dye. Because it was so expensive and rare, it was often worn by the kings. It's not clear whether she made the dye herself or she sourced it from merchants. But either way, Acts 16, 14-15 says, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So here you see a wealthy businesswoman, a worshiper of God, prevailing upon missionaries to show them hospitality. It's truly remarkable. Another one that I appreciate is Philemon. He hosted the church in his house. It was likely the church at Colossae. He was a fellow worker of Paul. He was a godly man with servants such as Onesimus. And he received a personal letter from Paul. Philemon, verse 7, says, For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. What a godly man who hosted the church in his house, who refreshed the hearts of the saints. Let's look at one more, and that is Paul. Could we go through this without talking about Paul, the Apostle Paul? Who was he? Well, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a man of renown. He was humbled and served Christ. He suffered many things. He worked with his own hands to earn a living. He taught a lot on finances and stewardship. That's all through his epistles. And he lived it. He was able to say, follow me as I follow Christ. This next scripture comes from a passage where he was praising the Philippians for their financial partnership with him. I would love to dive deeper in the future on this, but for now, let's just read Philippians 4, 11-13, which says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That was Paul. We can learn from him because, again, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. He certainly was no stranger to good stewardship of financial resources and material resources and the good gifts that God had given him on this earth. And may we be like him as he followed Christ. Can we make that our prayer? Can we say, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound? Can we say with Job, 
the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Can we, like him, as Solomon said, be a willing and faithful servant to accept our lot and rejoice in our toil? Can we be a faithful steward of all forms of capital, whether we die in prison like Paul or are given twice as much as before like Job? I pray you found this brief survey interesting and helpful as you think through your own situation and learn from those who have gone before us. And getting just a little personal for a moment, before I started actively growing in personal and business finance, the financial teaching throughout the Bible was mostly lost on me. It was only at that point where I saw it just a little bit. Because as I started learning about those things, I wanted to know, what does Scripture say about it? I was absolutely blown away. What I did was I took a green pencil, and every time I read a Scripture that had anything to do with earthly goods and wealth management, finances, or stewardship, things like that, I underlined it with a green pencil. Well, why green? Well, because I live in America and we have the greenbacks, and so that's my connection to money. I was shocked at what happened. My Bible just lit up with green. It's everywhere. And what I realized was this topic is inseparable from our worship to God. There's no getting around it. You need and I need to be good stewards of the world of the resources that we interact with every day that God has given us under our care for a short time while we're on this earth. We need to manage it for his glory. And we saw some very successful businessmen and women stewarding their resources and worship to God. And we haven't even scratched the surface yet. And I'm looking forward to our Wealth in the Bible segments where we'll dive into each situation a little bit deeper. But This has just been a quick survey and an overview. I pray that you've found it useful. What I want to leave you with is this. Can you be the type of person who takes his personal army to rescue the captured and oppressed, who grows up in a wealthy family, who's sold into slavery, is the best slave, put in charge of the the household of Potiphar, framed, imprisoned, then made ruler over all the wealth of Egypt? Can you be the type of person who orchestrates a multi-billion dollar real estate project like Solomon did. He can be the type of person who drops $200,000 on Jesus' burial or hundred k on anointing his feet like Mary did. He can be the type of person who houses the missionaries or the church in your city. Can you be the type of person who worships God in your stewardship of every area of life? Can you be the type of person who is thankful when the Lord gives and when the Lord takes away, who excels at your work while being bold for the gospel, then you will be a whole steward. Then you will reap a more abundant harvest for the glory of God. Coming up, how do you prefer to learn? Are you a visual learner, an auditory learner, a kinesthetic learner? Unless you put into practice what you learned, you haven't really learned anything. It's really quite useless. But how do you decide what to learn? How do you decide what to do? Where do you focus your efforts? Join us next time for a deep dive on first doing the right thing and then learning to do things right next on The Whole Steward. Now that you know more, go out and grow more. 
All content on The Whole Steward is for informational purposes only and must not be considered personal, professional, tax, or legal advice. Please consult an appropriate professional for individualized advice. Though we do our best to bring you reliable information, we make no guarantee on its accuracy. So you must rely on your own due diligence to draw your own conclusions. The views expressed by guests on the show are their own and may not represent that of the host. Please visit our website for complete terms and conditions. Thanks for joining us today for the holistic approach to wealth from a Christian worldview. This show is brought to you by thewholesteward.com.